0: Today to be talking to Dr. Caroline Sampson, an ECMO and intensive care consultant. We're going to be discussing the topic of acute respiratory distress syndrome. So I want to start by talking about a case. It's the middle of the night, you're the intensive care consultant on call and you're called by your registrar who's been asked to see a 50 year old with a pneumonia. They've had three days of appropriate antibiotics and despite this they've worsened with increasing respiratory effort. Kaz, first question. As an ICU consultant on, what information would you want to know from your registrar at this point?
1: Sure. Well, I suppose kind of some of those answers will be very similar to any patient that you're asked for review as a registrar on the wards overnight as to whether they need to come to ICU and actually whether they are a candidate for ICU. You know, um saying that a a 50 year old with pneumonia, you know, that that's a young patient, that's a reversible cause of their um, respiratory illness. Um, So you would expect that to be somebody who, if they need organ support or if they need a higher level of monitoring or just a bit closer observation that we can do on ICU. And obviously it depends on the hospital you're working in as to whether what level of care can be Provided on the wards. You know, there are some, certainly some bigger hospitals that might have kind of a level one or a level one and a half, or even a sort of level two unit that's managed by respiratory. Um, And there will be smaller DGHs where actually it's ward care at level naught. And for anything above that, whether that's one, two, or three, that comes to critical care. So, what I would want if you were phoning me in the middle of the night, and I think it's always important to remember as a registrar that actually. If you're waking somebody up, which is exactly what you should do, you're going to have to order the information that they get because they're they're going to go from being asleep, getting a phone call at three o'clock in the morning to trying to give you some sort of sensible um, management plans and kind of an action plan for that patient. So I would want to know the current state of the patient. And really, this is, you know, the bog standard observations that they'll have. You know, what are their saturations? What level of oxygen are they having at the moment? What is their respiratory rate? Are there any other organs affected? You know, are you worried about this patient cardiovascularly? Are they tachycardic? Are they hypotensive? Um, and, you know, sort of what ward management has been done so far? so you you really want to know kind of what is this patient sort of critically ill and we really need to get them up to ICU straight away and potentially get them intubated or is this a patient who the ward have phoned to sort of let us know because they have a potential to deteriorate but actually you don't think that they need that high level of care yet so I'd want to know what the patient's current state is and the other thing that we're going to want to know as the ICU consultant when we're thinking about whether to admit this patient actually are they a candidate for a higher level of care and are they a patient who we would admit for full escalation, so all organ support? Are they a patient that maybe we would admit for um, a trial of ICU or limited organ support? You know, there are definitely more patients that we would take to ICU now than we would have done 20 years ago, and we might take them but limit their treatment. So, say, yes, we'll, we'll bring this patient out, but actually, we will limit their treatment at, say, you know CPAP or non-invasive ventilation we wouldn't ventilate them. So I'd want to know as the consultant a good idea of the patient's past medical history and of their pre-morbid functioning. you know are they normally quite fit and well? Sometimes that's quite difficult information to gleam at three o'clock in the morning from a from a sick patient, but somebody who's been in hospital for a couple of days they will have had a history taken when they come in, we should have some idea of sort of baseline functioning. So I suppose those are the two key factors that you want to get across to your consultant in the middle of the night. What the patient's sort of clinical state is at that moment, what their past history is, what their physiological reserve is, whether they should be a candidate for escalation, and also you know all, all of them really finding out sort of what what your management plan is you know kind of looking at the patient from the end of the bed that's a really important tool. Um, you're the patient you're the person who's there by the bedside what do you want for this patient do you think that you can look at them again in a few hours do you think that we should bring them up because you're worried that they'll deteriorate in the next few hours or is actually this quite a well patient that the ward just wants us to be aware of because they're young and they have the potential to deteriorate.
0: Kaz you mentioned physiological reserve do you have any key phrases or, or ways of assessing that physiological reserve?
1: So we talk a lot about, um, especially sort of during COVID, we've discussed a lot about clinical frailty scores, and there are some quite well um, described clinical clinical frailty scores that we use. But actually, they are not applicable to younger patients; they are not validated tools in patients that are under sixty-five. But I suspect that all of us, about a bit going back to that end of the bedogram, all of us would be able to sit in a room as a clinician and watch someone come into that room, for example, in an outpatients clinic, and sort of almost straight away have an idea of their level of reserve and their level of frailty, and that will be um, how they look physically, that will be how they're walking, um, that will be how easy it is for them to move about whether they're walking with sort of aids. So, You know, kind of an idea at the end of the bedogram, if you like, an idea of someone's frailty is important, but actually we can have better measures of physiological reserve. You know, ask a patient how far they can walk on the flat. Ask a patient, can they climb a flight of stairs? Can they climb two flights of stairs? Most 50 year olds would be able to climb two flights of stairs without stopping, without too much of a problem. There are obviously things that limit uh, your physical exertion, your, your sort of your physiological reserve that aren't cardiorespiratory. You know things like severe arthritis or pain can actually limit people's, and then that's not related necessarily to their cardiorespiratory system. But if somebody is very severely limited because of you know sort of another condition such as pain, joint pain, or you know sort of severe arthritis actually then they haven't stressed their cardiovascular system in the whole time that they've been quite limited. So that that in itself can be um, an important consideration. But I, I would always like to know, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of also thinking a little bit, few steps ahead and thinking about, for example, and I know we'll come onto this when people refer me to patients for me to consider ECMO. Again, I can only go on the information that I've been given, because I cannot see the patient because they're often in different hospitals, sometimes in a different country. Um, But I can ask the simple things, you know, um, are they fully functional? Can they climb flight stairs? Can they walk a mile on the flat? Do they get breathless doing sort of simple things? I think we're all very good at saying independent of activities of daily living, but actually that's a massive scope from somebody that can, you know, clean their own teeth to somebody that can run a 5k without breaking a sweat. So actually quantifying that with sort of simple measures that everyone has although you know classically as soon as you ask someone if they can climb the flight stairs the answer will be I live in a bungalow um but they all have to climb flights of stairs at some point in their lives so um you know walking on the flat walking on an incline, or up a flight of stairs I think is is sort of two very easy and very important ways that we can measure sort of reserve because essentially with any critical illness you ask somebody you know that the stress that a critical illness puts us under whether that's from a 50 year old with pneumonia or whatever you know whatever reason is the cause of your critical illness and um, that puts a massive stress on the body that's kind of equivalent to running i, I often say this to, to patients and relatives you know this is equivalent of asking you to run a half marathon every day and actually somebody who is reasonably fit and well to begin with when they get their critical illness has got much more reserve to not only get over the critical illness, but also to, to rehab after such a sort of critical illness that takes you to intensive care than somebody who didn't have that level of um, physiological reserve to start with. And although it is age-related, actually, you, you know, we might come across much fitter 70-year-olds than we do 30-year-olds. So, you know, some of that is chronic illness, some of that is cardiorespiratory fitness, and some of that is things like deconditioning.
0: Okay. So your registrar has discussed with you and you've decided to bring the patient to intensive care. Is there any role for other forms of respiratory support, such as high flow or non-invasive ventilation, as a means to avoid intubation for this type of patient?
1: Now, This is, um, I think, a really interesting question. And I think that actually, because of the COVID pandemic, our pendulum for using forms of oxygen supplementation and forms of respiratory support has probably swung potentially has maybe swung a little bit too far the other way I mean we we obviously have been very used to dealing with um, ARDS secondary to COVID-19 in the last two years that's the sort of you know that, that's the majority of what we've been looking after and looking after in a lot of our units and we did find that in that cohort of patients there were some that um, actually could benefit from either high flow or high flow nasal oxygen Um, or uh, CPAP um, and sometimes sort of non-invasive, other non-invasive forms of ventilation before or um, as their entire treatment modality. um, And certainly it was something that we were pretty much trying almost in everyone before going, um, resorting to invasive ventilation, because I'm not sure we'll talk about it later on, we know that ventilation itself can be detrimental, especially to people whose lungs are already injured. Now the, the evidence for non-invasive ventilation CPAP support in pneumonias pre what we've done over the last two years with COVID is, is not act, it's not very robust and actually there, there is evidence that those managed on non-invasive ventilation uh, may have a worse outcome than those uh, who go straight for invasive ventilation. Now I think that all of us would want a trial of um, oxygen delivery that may not be able to be given on the board, such as high flow, such even as, as high flow nasal oxygen. Um, and that in a monitored environment, such as an ICU, um, with, you know, sort of uh, essentially one to one or one to two nursing care, which is, you know, really what critical care is about. Um, and and potentially other monitoring devices, such as maybe an arterial line to keep an eye on, on the gases, or even just continuous monitoring, you know, sort of with SATS probe. I think that there is um a, there may well be a role in some of those patients. And actually, we don't want to ventilate people who don't need it, but we also don't want to miss that boat for those who do need it, because we know delaying ventilation when people have got acute lung failure is also bad for them. Um, it's a bit of a million-dollar question as to which ones will get better with that and at what point you say right enough's enough then I'm going to think about putting you on a ventilator. But the evidence really is not there in things like pneumonia or um, ARDS but prior really to what we've been doing in Covid and I do wonder whether our pendulum because we've been so used to trying this might have swung a little bit, might swing a little bit too far the other way in our bacterial pneumonias because we will be trying this in all of them and I honestly don't know whether that is the right thing to do. I think what's really important with any patient that you're offering any support to is that it's a everything that we do is a trial. People will either get better with it or they won't and what we can do on intensive care is closely monitor those respiratory um, parameters that will give us a really good, good idea about whether this patient is you know stable whether they're improving or whether they're getting worse and that will be looking at their respiratory rate their work of breathing their oxygenation their co2 clearance their ph um that their, their sort of cardiovascular parameters as well so it it's important to always a bit like a fluid challenge you know, that the fact that it's called a challenge means you give it you then come back and you see whether what you've done has made them better or, or worse um, and that's the beauty of icu because that's what the one-to-one or one-to-two nurses will do for us
0: so you think it'd be reasonable to trial high flow or NIV uh, with close observation on the ICU?
1: Yeah, and I think that, that we we will do this more and more. Um, and I think that we will get more data on it in sort of non-COVID cases, which is great. And obviously, you know, it can be, um, it, it can be less resource intensive. It may be something that you can, um, you know, sort of offer, not necessarily on critical care. But again, actually, for anyone who you think is a candidate, for admission and who might end up ventilated I would always want to bring them up to monitor them even if whatever you're going to try whether you're going to try high flow nasal oxygen whether you're going to try a bit of CPAP but but then keeping a very close eye on them if people are deteriorating if you look at the obs before they deteriorate there there is generally a trend it is unusual for somebody to come up and look absolutely fine and then suddenly crash and need to go sort of as an emergency on on to be ventilated there is usually a trend in their respiratory rate in their pf ratio in their other cardiovascular parameters in again how they look from the end of the bedogram you know are they looking tired are they telling you they're tired because obviously they're awake are they um are they sweating are they working hard at this are they looking like they're tiring that's where your observation comes in. But I think it's reasonable to give everyone a trial of less invasive measures, unless, of course, they're in extremis, in which case you don't have a choice.
0: And of those options, would you have any preference of one over the other?
1: Um, This is a personal experience, not not a uh, based really on the scientific fact, um, because I don't think there are, I don't think there is literature necessarily to support one use or another. I think that high flow nasal oxygen is something that patients often tolerate really nicely it can give them a, a little bit of, of peep and obviously you can titrate up the oxygen um, it's something that will allow them to speak and drink water and um, it's it's often much more tolerable to the patient than a tight-fitting CPAP mask and actually that would always be my go-to first particularly if they've got, you know, sort of it's hypoxia is their main issue. If you've got a patient on the ward, if the 50 year old with, with pneumonia has actually got type two rather than type one respiratory failure, that may not help. But again, it could be something that you trial first off because it's probably the one that is most tolerated by the patient. And actually with the best will in the world, if you put a patient on CPAP or non-invasive ventilation that they keep taking off because they find it uncomfortable, it's not going to work.
0: Moving the case forward, the patient is brought to the intensive care and started on high flow oxygen. They undergo a chest x ray that's consistent with ARDS. Kaz, at this stage, is there any benefit of restrictive fluid management strategies for this sort of patient?
1: So I'm, I'm going to have to talk a little bit, if you'll excuse me, about the sort of pathophysiology of ARDS, yeah. because I think that's important when we're thinking about the things that we do to, to manage it. And, you know, acute respiratory assessment. Distress syndrome is, as the name suggests, a a syndrome. And actually, there's lots of different causes, one of which, a common one, is is our pneumonia, like like the chat that we're talking about. But actually, that probably only counts for about a third of our ARDS patients. Um, About one quarter have severe sepsis somewhere else in the body. And in fact, what we're seeing in the lungs is sort of what I described to my junior colleagues as the lung bit of the systemic, systemic inflammatory response syndrome. Another important cause is uh, aspiration pneumonitis, that probably counts for about 15% of what we see. Um, and then the remainder is sort of a hotchpotch of all sorts of things, which will include pancreatitis and um, sort of noxious fume inhalation and um, various other things. And then the, the final sort of one in 10 is, is trauma. So major trauma um, can cause sort of ARDS. And what actually happens... if we think about at the um, at the microscopic level so hopefully you and me are sitting here we've got uh, our alveoli our nice one-celled air sacs next to a, a capillary there's a few, alve- what we call our alveolar macrophages, which are sort of like your century duty white cells that kind of chuck about and mop up things that shouldn't be there, like fungal spores and bacteria. And then in ARDS, you get an insult. So that's either a direct insult, so for your pneumonia, that's going to be a direct infection in your lung, or for your pancreatitis, that's an indirect insult. And that basically causes those macrophages to uh, chuck out a load of pro-inflammatory cytokines, which Attract neutrophils that don't normally live in our alveolar, um, sort of in our in our alveoli, or in the capillaries around them. Particularly, they attract that to your lungs throughout, and then the sort of action that the neutrophils have, and various other reactive oxygen species, other inflammatory cytokines in the tiny little uh, capillaries, you get more inflammatory response. So you get platelet activation, you can get uh, microclots there. And you get flooding of your, both your alveoli and your interstitium with lots of protein-rich edema. So um, at the same time, you get your, um, your alveolar uh, lining, which are single cell, and most of them are type 1 cells, about 97% of our alveoli are lined with those. And then the other 3% are the type 2, and they're the ones that chuck out the surfactant. Your type 1 cells basically break down and turn into something called hyalin which is why ARDS um, is quite similar to what the newborn babies, uh, sorry, the, the premature neonates get when they have surfactant deficiency. But it's just in ARDS rather than surfactant deficiency, it just doesn't work so well, actually. You still have it there, but it's, it's less effective. So you've essentially got these poor alveoli with um, some of the membranes broken down, they're full of fluid, they can collapse because their surfactant isn't working, and there's much further for your oxygen to diffuse across that gap. So it makes sense to dry your patients out When if you're thinking about this purely theoretically at the cellular level, because a lot of the problem is you've got lots of protein rich edema drowning your alveoli and filling up that space between your alveoli and your capillaries is much further for the oxygen CO2 to go. And actually, most of the the sort of studies show that actually after you have, you know, quote unquote resolution of shock, because we know that certainly if you have an infective cause like pneumonia, you might well need um more fluids right at the beginning if your patient is shocked is cardiovascularly shocked whether that's um you know usually vasodilatory in these patients but as soon as you've got resolution of shock you should try and certainly minimize your fluid load to these patients and potentially actually diures off and that's one thing that is um, certainly advice that, that we give from, from sort of from the with my hat on when we're trying to manage people conventionally at, at a distance is to try and get rid of some of that extravascular lung water. There is a trial called the FACT trial, which I think was uh, the 2006. And it's, it's a big trial. It's about a thousand patients. And they were actually looking at something that we see very rarely nowadays. So pulmonary artery catheter versus central venous catheter. But they also looked at lots of fluid versus a um, a sort of liberal fluid versus a, a dry approach to ARDS and it's a big trial and they're pretty good separation in the groups as in one was seven litres positive at a week down the line and one was neutral at a week down the line and they showed that in the group that was neutral actually they got off the ventilator more quickly and they had sort of um, they got out of the ICU more quickly although they couldn't show mortality benefit so you know big trial yes probably keeping them on the drier side when they're ready to give up that fluid and sort of minimizing your fluid but it's that that goldilocks of you want to be intravascular complete but you don't actually want to have ex- extra sort of um, fluid on your lungs so yes i think fluid management is important i would be less worried about it in that first few days when he came up to intensive care particularly if he's got other signs of sepsis and tachycardic hypertensive all around the edges etc
0: despite your best efforts the patient continues to deteriorate. What in particular would make you decide to intubate this patient?
1: It probably is the the million dollar question as to when to intubate a patient and I think that goes for any condition, not just your sort of pneumonia ARDS patients. Certainly the things that would worry me would be a very tachypneic patient, deteriorating gases and as to at what level you say too much you know is too high um but there probably isn't a set level as in you know anyone who hits a respiratory rate of 40 should be intubated but it's more of a trend and i think if your patient is deteriorating despite the measures that you've put in then it is time and they are a candidate for ventilation i think we've already sort of discussed that then it's something that you want to do sooner rather than later and emergency intubations at three o'clock in the morning although we do sometimes have to do them because the patient condition that sort of mandates that actually possibly better to do you know sort of with the team around on the afternoon ward round at five o'clock in a patient who's clearly slowly going in the wrong direction rather than a three o'clock in the morning you know my SATs are in the 80s with a with an FIO2 of 100% and there's nowhere further to go but I think that is a difficult call And I think that that is um, something that as a registrar, I would have wanted to have always discussed with my senior Um, because I, I, I don't think there is an easy answer. And I think one of the other really important things to learn about ICU is, you know, no one has all the answers. And it works much better as a team sport, which is why these discussions are much better to be had between people, because um, that, that will give you your best patient care. So I, I guess for me, you know, the patient who is clearly tiring, the patient who is clearly their hypoxia is worsening Um And the the patient in whom sort of CO2 is rising and a bit like the asthmatics, that's a worrying sign. Um, That's the sign of a patient who is maybe tiring now or their lung disease is progressing and you need to take over for them. I think cardiovascularly, again, you know, you can see increasing tachycardia. You can, again, that end of the bed, are are they sweaty? Are they looking a bit grey? Are they looking tired? Are they using their accessory muscles? Are they tripodding? All of those simple respiratory examinations that we can do from the end of the bed and actually are they worse than they were an hour ago are they worse than they were four hours ago when you saw them it's about continually coming back and eyeballing your patient
0: speaking for myself I think the decision to intubate someone is not always an easy one it often feels like I'm dooming the patient to time on the ventilator and the negative consequence of mechanical ventilation I think as you've said the trend of the patient helps guide that decision for me But now as the consultant on call, I'm very reliant on the doctor at the end of the bed and ultimately their level of concern and really their gut feeling.
1: And I think um, I think that's a really key phrase, Ricky, gut feeling. We think that a gut feeling comes from experience and sort of bits of your brain saying, I've seen this before and this is what happened last time. And that's that's kind of what we mean by gut feeling. But it is really important. And I think the other thing, the other big thing that I think is important when you're thinking about intubation is actually delirium in your patients. And worsening delirium may well be because they feel like they are drowning and they can't breathe and they are frightened and they are panicking. And obviously we know that that sympathetic stimulation of of panicking then increases sort of the oxygen demand that their brain is asking for, which they can't get in. So it is a bit of a, a vicious spiral. But I think that often when we intubate actually it's because the patient is becoming quote-unquote unmanageable but it's probably becoming they're becoming quote-unquote unmanageable because they are feeling much feeling like they can't breathe so well, I think delirium is probably quite an important thing to watch for and that's something that the nurses obviously be very you know sort of hot hot on and they'll say look he's getting very distressed or um, he's getting quite delirious and I think that that probably is a sign that you should crack on and put them off to sleep.